0: And it is yet another edition of What's Involved, my special guest, who I haven't actually spoken to for a very long time, and I'm very, very glad to have you on the show with us. Welcome to you, Graham Codrington. Uh, it's great to be chatting to you again, David. Been years. I actually was thinking about it the other day, and I feel quite embarrassed because it has literally been years. But an appropriate time for us to to, to be chatting, but before we get into the meat and potatoes of it, as it were. Uh, Tell me a little bit about Graham. Uh, Where did you start off? uh, You know, what did you do? And how does one become a futurist? (laughs)
1: <laughs> yes, well, a futurist is the label on my business card at the moment. And uh, unfortunately, that doesn't mean I can predict the future. Uh, I wish I could. Um, but uh, what a futurist does is we try and predict change. So we try and uh, anticipate how the world might change. And uh In my case, I specifically then want to help people to prepare for possible changes in the future. So we develop scenarios, we give people options about what might happen, good things, bad things. We try and anticipate new technologies, try and work out which technologies are just fads and and which are really game-changing, industry-changing trends. And uh, obviously, try and help people to change their attitude towards change and and towards the future. So a lot of the work I do actually is thinking about history, because we look at at trends, we look at things that have happened in the past, and then try and work out if those have any clues of what might happen in the future. So with COVID, for example, um, 15 years ago, our team wrote a series of scenarios that looked at all of the ways in which the world might uh, engage with massive disruptive change. And we came up with four scenarios, an asteroid strike, uh, the sun giving a solar pulse that uh, wiped all the world's computers clean, uh, World War III with nuclear weapons, and, believe it or not, a global pandemic that shut down the world in a global quarantine. And our publisher, said that that global pandemic was the least believable <laughs> of really? all the scenarios. Wow. So we can't claim. Yeah, exactly. We can't claim to have predicted COVID and certainly obviously didn't peg a date to it or anything, which might've been useful if we could, but it, it's not something that, that is a, you know, some people refer to it as a black swan, as if we couldn't have imagined it. But in fact, a lot of people have been thinking about what would happen if a global pandemic happened. And, uh, you know, our job then is to say to people, you know, what do you actually do to anticipate that? What we've done is we've looked back over the last hundred years and we've said, well, what if, what has happened during some of the previous coronavirus outbreaks? We've had 12 major coronavirus outbreaks in the last 100 years, and there's actually a pattern that emerges, and I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit uh, during the show. But that's what I do. Uh, I'm a futurist. I help people to imagine the future and prepare for it. Um, And my background is I started life actually as an accountant at KPMG, did CA articles, went into the IT world, uh, went into non-profit space, uh, doing youth work, Uh, so a variety of different things. Uh, And then ultimately, 18 years ago, started a company called Tomorrow Today, and uh, that's what I've been doing for the last 18 years, the scenario futurist work.
0: Fantastic. The other thing I've noticed from uh, from your website is you are uh, an unlearned, do you say, which I also found quite yeah. quite amazing.
1: Well, again, so that, that's a, another a label just to get people thinking. Um, that comes from one of the world's great futurists, a guy called Alvin Toffler, who wrote a book in the early 1970s in which he was trying to think about what life would be like in the 21st century. And he was the guy who coined the phrase, you know, constant change, or change is the only constant, Um, in terms of thinking about what our world would be like now. And he said that the the illiterate of the future will not be those people who cannot read or write, but those who cannot learn, unlearn, and relearn. And learning is not just about learning new stuff. It's also about our ability to look at what we already believe and what we think we know and actually say, either I was wrong or it's now out of date. My my habits, my ways of thinking, my approach to life is now out of date And I need to unlearn my old habits and ways of thinking and relearn new ways. And for me, that's probably the most powerful thing I try and leave with people. It's not saying that you have always been wrong your whole life and you must repent and, and change and whatever other language you want to use. It's just saying the ways we used to live, the ways we used to think are no longer helpful or relevant unlearn those and relearn new ways. And I think when you get your head around the fact that that's the world we live
0: in, uh, it makes living in this world a whole lot easier. Indeed. I I think it does. And, and, you know, this is one of the things that I think has, has shocked a lot of people um, in terms of this, this coronavirus and the lockdown and and things like that is that I believe people are having to face situations and, and things that they'd never thought about in their lives. And this, this concept of unlearning something. Um, I cannot tell you, and, and, and I suppose you feel exactly the same or you've heard exactly the same thing, people keep saying they can't wait to go back to normal. And I don't <laughs> know if there's ever going to be a normal as in the way things used to be. Uh, if I take myself, for example, um, one of the things I always, being a radio person, you know, in my bones... Um, I always used to believe in live interviews in studio, bums on seats. That's the only way it's going to work. And if people would mention telephonic interviews for me, I'd have absolute heart failure because that's not real radio. And yet here I am. It,
1: exactly. You know, I've been trying for years with conference organizers to get them to change their mindset. I, my life for the last 18 years has been traveling around the world. I've, been, I've gone to uh, 100 countries. I was in 24 countries just last year alone. And, uh, you know, going live on stage, in person at, at conferences, doing keynote presentations about how the world would change. And I kept on suggesting to my clients, why don't I record a video in advance? We, we put a 30-minute video out. We say to everybody in the audience, you have to watch this video before you come to the conference. And then I will come and we'll just do Q&A. What's the point of me flying all the way across the world to Budapest and Shanghai and Buenos Aries? And then just doing a, a keynote presentation in which I just deliver data to people. Surely the value of having me in the room is an interactive session. So let's, let's put all of this stuff on video before I get there. And then we go Q&A only for an hour. Only one or two conference organizers even considered it. Now, of course, that I think is going to be the new reality. Even when we get back to traveling for business conferences, I think people are going to be saying, there's no value in just going to a conference, sitting in a darkened conference hall for three days and just listening to people talk at us. Let's never do a conference like that again. And, and for me, this COVID crisis is going to push people to do things and to change things that they should have been doing and changing uh, for a while now with the digital transformation and you know, all the changes taking place against us. So as, as much as it's a crisis and a disruption now, I think we'll look back and say it, it, it accelerated us into
0: a new reality. And, and in the end, it was a good thing. Fantastic stuff. I want to talk more about this and about Corona and what it does. Uh, When we come back, this is what's involved. My special guest is Graham Codrington. We'll be back in just a bit. And we're back with my special guest on what's involved. Graham Codrington. Uh, We're talking futurists. We're talking um, how the world has changed, I guess. Um, And it's, it's something that's been quite amazing to me because, I mean, I've spoken about, you know, things like, I'd I'd never even got close to imagining uh, the coronavirus, but, you know, about the the digital transformation, the digital age, um, and, and, you know, taking stuff online. And when you talk about that, um, I do a lot of communication and sales training. um, And we also used to say to people, listen, why don't we, you know, be much more effective if we get the the grunt work out of the way. We'll, we'll put together a video presentation, very much like what you did. Uh, and then the guys can look through that, work through it. And then when we arrive, we'll be able to get into the real meat and potatoes. And, and nobody wanted to do that. Um, suddenly, as you said earlier, everything has changed. Now, how, how did you handle things when this this sort of coronavirus pandemic was announced? Because I know personally for me, um, those first two months, I was I was a mess. I mean, I had no ideas. felt like somebody pulled the rug right out from under me, and it was doom and gloom.
1: Well, I had exactly the same. You know, as I said, part of my job is travelling around the world to speak at conferences, and uh, you know, the travel was cancelled, the conferences were cancelled, and everything was was cancelled. And uh, it definitely was uh, doom and gloom. So you know, we as a team shifted. Uh, as quickly uh, as we could uh, to try and work out what is it that our clients actually needed and then how could we deliver that uh, to them and and initially everybody was just in crisis mode and we're not crisis managers Our, our, our company tomorrow today the whole thing is yes anticipating future change and, and working out then today what we need to do about it, but not in the sense of helping somebody through an immediate crisis. It's more about scenario planning and so on. So initially, the, the first few weeks, uh, we didn't have much work, we didn't uh, have much interest. But luckily, because of what we do for a living, we had already been anticipating the digital transformation of our work. As I said, we had already been speaking to clients to suggest to them that we take some of our stuff online. We had created something called the Future of Work Academy, which is online helping people to develop skills for the future through digital courses. So we had already anticipated that the future might require a lot more digital engagement, a lot more online. And all we had to do was just accelerate some of our plans. And then we began to see clients saying to us, okay, what are some of the scenarios? You know, what's, how long is this uh, lockdown going to last? What's going to happen after the lockdown? And so luckily for us, because of the work we do around anticipating the future, we had a lot of our clients connecting with us and saying, can you help us develop some of those scenarios and, and help us think through what needs to happen? And because we had the digital stuff online, we, we were able to move into that space. So as one of our team members uh, said uh, in, in a moment of calm, they said, you know, the very best time to prepare for the coronavirus was about two years ago. Uh, <laughs> you know, the second best time is today. Uh, and, and so we, we, made, we had luckily been making some of the shifts and then we were able to just accelerate into that. So as it happens, we've actually been quite busy uh, over the last few months, which has been a, a real blessing. But, but uh, yeah, busy in ways we didn't anticipate for this
0: year. Now, Graham, so you, you mentioned that, uh, are you guys behind, if I may ask, and I may just have missed that, that future self academy? Is that something that you're involved in?
1: Yes. So I I am involved with the Future Self Academy um, and and that's a very similar thing to to what we were planning to do. So I actually put one of my books into the Future Self Academy before lockdown, uh, before the coronavirus hit, and I'm scheduled to put another one in the book. Uh, down there uh, as soon. Well, now, now that we're in level two, I suppose the studios can be open again and I can go in and, and do some recordings. Um, so yeah, you know, for me, I am constantly looking for new platforms to get our work out to people, for new ways to help people engage with thinking about the future. Um, but our, our particular product is called The
0: Future of Work Academy. Okay, the future of work academy. All right. Okay, great. Got that one. Um, but Graham, you've been very outspoken during this this coronavirus. I've seen a, a couple of your posts and, and some videos that you've put out um, about the fact that you know a lot of people in this country and South Africans are strange. We we discussed this briefly before we went into the show. Um, as as we're recording this, it is the first day of, of, of level two. Um, this show is going to be going out. If you're listening to the show, it'll be a Monday night. We will have been talking a, this, um, about a week prior to you hearing this. So it is uh, a Tuesday now and uh, we're discussing this. But I've been looking at, at social media today, for example, and people have been going nuts and celebrating the fact that they can buy cigarettes and that they can buy alcohol and this and that and the next thing's open. But surely somebody's got to put up their hand somewhere and say "But the coronavirus hasn't gone anywhere yet. What are your thoughts?
1: You, you know, I, I think that COVID has shone a massive spotlight on, on the world. And, you know, from a personal perspective, Perspective. We we've learned this new word comorbidities. Well, I, it's a new word for me. Pre-existing conditions, I suppose, is what it was. And that's why I've been a little bit nervous about getting COVID because although I'm a, a fit middle-aged guy, um, I do have asthma, and I just we, nobody knows how COVID's going to impact them. So I I haven't been scared. I haven't been fearful. But you know, if if I can help it, I'd prefer not to get COVID. I think, though, that the concept is useful, right? This big COVID spotlight is shining on the pre existing conditions in some of your relationships. I've got a divorce lawyer friend, and she says she's never been busier, sadly, than before because the COVID spotlight is on some of our personal relationships. The COVID spotlight is on some of our companies and the way that your company operates. Does your boss trust you or not? Or is your boss forced you to put software on your computer to check how many hours you're online and micromanaging you from a distance? And I I think the other way, the other COVID spotlight that you're talking about here is the spotlight of personal responsibility. And for me, it's been very interesting to see the different reactions that people have had and I must say i 'm immensely disappointed with some of my friends uh, even and acquaintances of people who 've just shown themselves to be immensely selfish to to basically say it 's all about me it 's about my rights, my freedoms. you know these are the people who say, "Well, I refuse to wear a mask i don 't have to wear a mask or i 'm going to continue to visit my friends or i 'm going to go running or i 'm going to go out." Um, and, you know, we live in a society where we need to be considering each other and, and considering other people. And initially, people just wanted regulations to tell them what they weren't and weren't allowed to do. Now that we're at level two, basically, the government said, you make your own choices, but right? you decide what you're going to do. And so many people have just said, excellent. Now we can do whatever we like. But that's not what the government said. The government said there are no regulations, but COVID is still in the system. So you have to think it through, people. You have to um, think about where you want to go, minimize your contact with other people, make sure you don't get COVID, that you don't infect somebody else if you do have COVID. And I think we have this massive spotlight shining on us as a society now where we need to learn and you, and, and maybe I'm sounding very holier than thou. Uh, I don't mean to. So let, let me make this about me. I need to learn again that I'm part of a society. Uh, you know, David, I honestly, I really do work on my company's got a foundation. My wife and I volunteer at a township school. We, we try and be good citizens in South Africa. But honestly, I think I need to admit to myself, I didn't know how poor the poor people are in South Africa, that millions of people would line up to get 350 Rand from the government for a month and that they would take the time. It was worth it to go and get that money shows me just how little they had. And I I hope for me, for myself, and I hope for everybody else that COVID helps us to think more about other people and to contribute more to society around us. And sorry, it's a, it's a long answer to your question, but but that's where my mind has gone during COVID. We don't think about other people nearly enough, in, in nearly enough ways. And I hope that will be one
0: of the lasting legacies of COVID, that we begin to do that more. I'm, I'm, I'm with you 100% on that. And we're and we going to get into a little bit more about us as South Africans and what we tend to do but I despair, um, I really do, because I've seen what people do. And, and what, what scares me and has scared me through this whole um, pandemic to date is the youngsters. And, and the youngsters seem to have absolutely not a care in the world besides, um, and maybe I'm generalizing here, but, that, you know, this immediate gratification. You know, why can't I see my friends? Why can't I do this? I'm young. I'm, nothing's going to happen to me. Um, I'm one of those people with a, a, a comorbidity. I have, uh, I'm a diabetic. Um, and I'm going, well, you know, it's not just about you. Think about people around you. Um, but I think, as I said, we despair. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit more um, about us as South Africans, where we're going, maybe touch on uh, how our government has done Um, And then later on, we're going to wrap up with the where to. So there is some good news coming. I'm sure Graham's got some good news for us. Uh, We'll be back in just a bit. It is What's Involved. And my special guest is Graham Codrington. And we're back with my guest, Graham Codrington. What's Involved? It is so good to have you along with us. Graham, just before the break, I was was also going into a bit of a monologue there about the fact that I despair and about youngsters. And... um, (sighs) It, it seems, is this just a South African problem where, where we don't seem to care about anybody but ourselves?
1: No, it's definitely not. We, we're seeing this all around the world. And if I can just say, I, I think you're being a, a little bit harsh on, on young people there. I know you said you were generalizing and, uh, and I think it is a generalization. I have seen a lot of young people being uh, very thoughtful, uh, about their circumstances, the families they 're living with, I uh, have a friends uh, who 's going through chemotherapy and, and the children and the young people in that space were were very, very protective of that sort of pre-existing condition. Um, and, but having said that, you know, young people are bulletproof. So at least they, they think that they are. Uh, I remember the, the days when I was back at varsity, and, and you do. You, you don't think anything will get in your way. That's part of what we want from young people. That's the energy they bring to society. But it isn't just a South African thing. This is happening all over the world. You know, you can look at places uh, from Brazil to the UK, uh, from Australia to America, uh, and you see similar things happen in society. And and I I think the divide here is not old and young. Um, I don't think it's black and white. I think the divide is between uh, people who are thinking about others, people whose uh, systems are set up to look for who is vulnerable in society, and for helping the vulnerable. And in political terms, those are often seen as uh, left-wing or labor or progressive parties. And, and then there's, there's the other side, which are often seen as right-wing or conservative uh, parties who are more about uh, making space for individuals to prosper. And that's, you know, neoliberalism and capitalism and so on. And I think this COVID uh, crisis has shone a spotlight. And and sadly, I think it's probably polarized us. I'm probably part of the problem at the moment. uh, In in, in lockdown, I I haven't been in a huge mood to be gracious to to people who see the world differently, sadly. But but I think we're going to have to find a way to come together uh, after the COVID crisis, because we've got to get both of those views in. Yes, we've got to make space for the individuals to to forge a path, but we can't ignore the vulnerable in society. We can't ignore people who have comorbidities. We can't ignore people who don't have the means to create their own wealth. We can't ignore people who've lost their jobs and can't just go into their network and get another job. And, and so I, I think we're going to come out the other end of COVID with a lot of work to do to to choose how we want to set our societies up, to choose the correct political frameworks in our countries. And that's not a South African statement. I think that's a, a country by country worldwide issue.
0: Okay. But Graham, in your opinion, how have we, how have we done as a, as a society to date and, um, I, I don't want you to, to sort of, you know, lead us into any sort of political waters, but I mean, this is something that needs to be discussed. How has our government done? Because I feel they've, they've let the people down.
1: Well, David, it's an interesting one, right? So if we're talking specifically as South Africans, I, I think there are three levels to look at. I think firstly, from a strategic level, from a big picture, high level, I think they've actually done brilliantly. Uh, we were one. We were within the first ten countries to institute a travel ban to put lockdown in place. We saw what could happen, and we knew we needed to flatten the curve. Remember that. Remember when we were all using that that term. Mm-hmm. And the point of that was that we knew, we knew that we were a susceptible population because of poverty, wealth inequality, because of underlying comorbidities of TB and AIDS, we knew that we would be hard hit, uh, that we wouldn't be able to escape like Australia or New Zealand or Germany of, of kind of locking down and making sure we didn't get COVID. And what we needed to do was prepare the health system. Preparing the health system was making sure we had field hospitals, making sure that the current Um, healthcare system became ready. We put protocols in place. We got PPE. We also had to give ourselves some time to learn about this disease. We didn't want to be the first country to spike, because then you're learning on the job. You're learning, do you put people on ventilators or not? What, What medicines do you use? People forget that we've worked very quickly, Uh, by we, I mean the the entire world's science and and healthcare professionals have learned very quickly what to do and what not to do. And because South Africa locked down early, we've got huge benefit from that. My my sister had had COVID just a a few weeks ago, and, and it got bad. Her O2 levels were dropping. But here's the point she knew to go and buy an O2 machine, whatever it's a technical thing, to check her O2 levels so that it didn't crash. When it dropped below 90, she went to the hospital. She wasn't feeling horrible, but her O2 was crashing. They knew what drugs to give her. They gave her antibiotics. We didn't know that in March and April. And that's why people were dying in Spain and Italy and New York and why people haven't died here. So at a high level, I think the government did a good thing. Then the second thing is the, the healthcare system. So Dr. Mkizer, Professor Solomon, um, and we've listened to these guys, right? Uh, Professor Karim, sorry. We, we've listened to these people and the experts. And at, at a healthcare level, I think we've done a good thing. The problem is now that that at the third level, which is government delivery, we've hit up against our South African comorbidity. And the comorbidity is corruption and incompetence. And we do need to separate those two things in our conversation. We can say congratulations to the government for strategically seeing the potential for harm and, and taking us into lockdown and making sure that that we come out the other end with, yes, infections across the country, but one of the lowest fatality rates in the world, our healthcare system never being overwhelmed, uh, more recoveries than almost every other country in the world. We can say that, and at the same time, we can still say, why is there nobody in jail yet for PPE corruption? Why do we still have to face massive corruption and incompetence from our government um, and and hold our government to account. And that then leads directly into our thinking about next year's election and and hoping that this big COVID spotlight um, allows us to hit a big reset button in South Africa uh, to say we've got to reset our political environment here. We can say both things. Congratulations and sort yourself out at the same time
0: and that is probably one of the best ways i've heard it put and and trust me we we get bombarded on all sides by um apparent armchair covid specialists and armchair politicians and everything i think that's a very very balanced view and it it is one thing and and it's something that struck me particularly during this time is the difference between the haves and the have-nots in this country And the have-nots have literally been trampled into the dirt. And I I think it is absolutely shocking. And for my part in it, um, at a part that I played, maybe even unconsciously, I I feel really badly about that. And as a result, we have started to try and do what we can with what we have. Uh, And I think there's many, many people like that. When we come back, though, Graham, good news. Is there good news? Can you share some good news with me? Absolutely. Don't go away, people. There is good news. Fantastic stuff. It is what's involved with my special guest, Graham Codrington. When we come back, the good news for our future and our country, at least the way Graham sees it. And we're back with my guest, Graham Codrington, wrapping up with some good news. So, Graham, this has happened. Everybody's fallen about the place. A lot of people have um and and this is where the buzzwords come in again uh, become quite agile they've pivoted all of those wonderful words um for me it wasn't so much as being agile or pivoting as scrambling and clawing my way into something that i could put food on the yes. table for but that's my story what is the good news going forward for us
1: Look, I I think there's a variety of levels of good news. The the first is to recognize that the bad news is huge, right? Uh, I mean, we already had a tough economic environment. We already had lots of challenges as a country and COVID isn't going to help us out. It hasn't removed any of those. So even if we recover quickly from COVID, we only recover to a point where all the other issues are, are still there for us. But for me, the good news in this is at a variety of levels. The first level is, I, I do see South Africans coming together again. You know, we've had during the lockdown, we had the 10th anniversary of the the, the, the Football World Cup. And, and we reminded ourselves again of what it felt like back in 2010, to just come together as a nation and have the world's eyes on us and deliver big time. It was amazing. And we do that as South Africans. We do that regularly. When we come together and we focus our energies on doing something good, we can do something great. And, and, and now we've, we have seen similar things happen. The amount of people who have got food parcels together, who are helping each other, I, I think there's going to be a lasting legacy of, of Connection and engagement, I, I really hope that there is, so the second level then of, of of hope that I have is that I think that some people who might have known yes, there are problems in South Africa but maybe hadn 't been fully aware, you know, as I said earlier, just I'd, obviously we all know that there are poor people in South Africa, but did I know how poor the poor people really are i don 't think so. Um NHI, you know, this conversation about a national health system, there can't be a single South African left who doesn't now realize why we need to have a good healthcare system for everyone in South Africa. No matter how rich and privileged I am, I am only protected from COVID in as much as the poorest person in this country is protected from COVID. And, and so we must build an NHI that works for everybody. And, and we must build an economic system that works for everybody. And, and the old school neoliberal capitalism is not working for everybody. And so I think we have an opportunity, and I hope, this is my hope, that we take the opportunity to hit a big reset button here. Um, and, and and to find a new path forward the old path wasn't working and we need to find a new path forward and that also means that we've got to find new political systems you know if we think that the anc is is proving ineffective as government the valid question is well who else would you vote for because i look at the current uh, opposition politi- political parties and i think i'm not giving any of you guys my vote either I'm really hoping that people will stand up now, um, get more involved in, in politics, and give us viable alternatives so that we've got something to vote for uh, in the next few years, that there's more coalition work done by the opposition parties, not these little kingdoms emerging. I honestly, David, think that we could look back in a few years' time and see that, that COVID forced us to, to make significant shifts. And, and I truly believe and I truly hope that we will see them as positive shifts uh, and that we took the opportunity of being in the dark valley to find the path out the other side. Uh, I think we can do it. I hope that we do.
0: Um, yeah, I, I, I would agree with you. 100% there. Before I let you go, though, um, one of the things, and it's a couple of questions that I've been asked, is all of these people in our country that have been affected by this uh, coronavirus, those that have lost jobs, you know, the employment, business-wise, where do you see yeah. us going business-wise? Do, you, do you, Have you spotted some trends in in terms of the kind of businesses that are going to thrive. So maybe people should start looking at upskilling themselves in that direction.
1: Well, here, let, let me do what I said right at the start of the, the show. You know, a futurist looks back at history, actually, to try and find trends. And there's great news there uh, in two specific ways. The first is that after every other coronavirus of the last 100 years, all the way back to the Spanish flu of 1918 and 19, there's been a very quick economic recovery. Because infrastructure hasn't been destroyed, right? It's not like we've had a world war where half of our airports and our buildings have been blown up. We've just had to take a massive break. It's been a big hit to the economy. But hopefully things can can, can take off very quickly on the other side. So tourism, obviously, has had a massive hit. Hospitality, a massive hit. But as soon as people can travel and as soon as people can go back to restaurants, most people will. And so we have to set ourselves up as, as the first destination for international tourists too desperate to go traveling again. So we've kind of got to gear ourselves up for a, for a flood of demand in certain industries. And that would include agriculture and <laughs> South African wines and tourism and mining and so on. So there, there is good news that there could be quite an increase in economic activity. At the same time, though, we also see from history that deep disruptions produce innovation. And and we, you know, after the Spanish flu of 1918 and 19, there was the roaring 20s. Of massive innovation that took place in many different industries as people began to reimagine what those industries might look like. And that innovation is normally fueled by entrepreneurship. So, Dave, my answer to your specific question is I think as South Africans, we need to stop waiting for government and big business to make jobs for us that then we can send our CVs off to find a job. And we need to start. Um, focusing on building entrepreneurs. And that's government policy and and government providing support. That's banks giving loans to small businesses and entrepreneurs. But that's also us as families and friends, not looking at somebody who wants to become an entrepreneur and thinking they failed because they don't have a real job there really is a South African mindset about saying, no, a, a job is a job and an entrepreneur is somebody who couldn't get a job. We've got to change our attitude to say, no, we support, we honor, we, we love people who give it a go, who, who turn a side hustle into a real business and if our friends and family start doing it, we must support them, not pull them down. And, and if we can develop a million or two million entrepreneurs in the next two or three years, we'll turn this country around easily.
0: Absolutely. I've often said that, that uh, one of the solutions to our problems is to have more business owners, more people who are self-employed, more entrepreneurs um, so some brilliant advice and definitely a light at the end of the tunnel. Graham, if, if people want to get hold of you specifically or um, uh, t- uh, tomorrow, today, what is the best way to go about that?
1: Well, if, if you can spell my name, Graham Codrington, just do a search for me. I'm kind of all over the place from LinkedIn to, to YouTube. If you want to connect with my company, go to Global com so tomorrow first tomorrow today global dot com
0: and uh, graham spelt g-r-a-e-m-e um, not like i spelt it uh, when i reached out to you the first and you were most gracious and not pointing out that i was an idiot and didn't spell your name properly so thank you for that I do appreciate
1: it. You you know, along with many of my uh, black South African friends, uh, I am just used to people not knowing how to either spell or say my name. (laughs) So (laughs) thank
0: you. All right. And one last thing before we say goodbye. What's next for you, Graham Codrington? You know what? I uh, am very grateful to have found quite
1: early what I love doing. Uh, for a living and discovered that people are prepared to pay me to do it. So uh, you know what, for me, I love thinking about the future. I love helping people change the way they think. And I hope that people will continue to pay me to do that for the rest of my life. So I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. And I hope it makes a difference in the world.
0: I have no doubt that it will. Thank you so much, Graham, for taking the time out uh, and having a chat with us. And uh, I do wish you guys all of the best. You've certainly given us some food for thought.
1: My pleasure. Thanks, David.
0: There we go. And that wraps it up. But with my special guest, Graham Codrington, uh, joining me here on What's Involved. And to you, each and every one of you, thank you for listening.